Our Old Testament reading this morning is from Exodus chapter 7, verses uh, 14 through 24. And if you recall what's happening in the book of Exodus, this is where God has told Moses that he's going to send him to rescue his people out of slavery in Egypt. And there's been a bit of back and forth there, and then a bit of back and forth between Moses and Pharaoh already. And the people still aren't out of slavery. They are still there. They're still in slavery, but God is not finished yet. And so this is actually where things start to pick up a bit more. Before we read, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this day that you have made, and God, we thank you for your word which you have given to us. God, we pray that this morning you would give us ears to hear, that you would give us minds to think and to understand. You would give us hearts that are ready to receive your word into our lives and ready to trust the things that even we may not be able to see or understand yet. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Exodus chapter 7, verses 14 through 24. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is unyielding. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he goes out to the river. Confront him on the bank of the Nile. And take in your hand the staff that was changed into a snake. Then say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has sent me to say to you, Let my people go, so they may worship me in the wilderness. But until now, you have not listened. This is what the Lord says. By this you will know that I am the Lord. With the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water of the Nile, and it will be changed into blood. The fish in the Nile will die, and the river will stink. The Egyptians will not be able to drink its water. The Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron, take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over the streams and canals, over the ponds and all the reservoirs, and they will turn to blood. Blood will be everywhere in Egypt, even in vessels of wood and stone. Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord had commanded. He raised his staff in the presence of Pharaoh and his officials and struck the water of the Nile and all the water was changed into blood. The fish in the Nile died and the river smelled so bad that the Egyptians could not drink its water. Blood was everywhere in Egypt. But the Egyptian magicians did the same things by their secret arts, and Pharaoh's heart became hard. He would not listen to Moses and Aaron, just as the Lord had said. Instead, he turned and went into his palace and did not, even, and did not take even this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile to get drinking water because they could not drink the water of the river. Hmm. Fun times, right? Not fun times. Turning then to our gospel reading, Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 11. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord needs it, and we'll send it back here shortly. They went and found a colt outside in the street tied at a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, What are you doing untying that colt? They answered as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. 
Hosanna in the highest heaven. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything. Since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. This is the word of the Lord. Well, this morning, I mean, looking at Revelation chapter 6, and I need to warn you before we get into this, that this is where this book kind of takes a turn. And so what we've been looking at so far in chapters 1 through 5 have been preparing us for really for chapter 5, and then everything flowing out of chapter 5 kind of comes from that. But it's really important that we keep some of the things that we've learned in mind, some of the visions that we've seen in mind. So first of all, let me just remind you for context of some of the things that we've seen. We've seen that John is on an island called Patmos. He is there in exile. He says that it's because of the word of the Lord and the testimony of Jesus Christ that he is out there on this island. Now, he's out there on this island, and Jesus gives him this vision, this revealing of what things are like from a heavenly perspective. And so we are so kind of locked into seeing things from our earthly perspective through the things that you can see and hear and touch and smell and taste like there are senses and we're like this is what's real and what john is given is a vision that lets him know that there's actually there's more to the story than just what you can experience through your five senses that you see god is on the throne of the universe and that there are some things that are going on that you can hear and see (laughs) and touch that are going on that would be really easy if you forget the rest of it. It'd be really easy to misinterpret what's going on and to think, uh, for example, that if if I am experiencing suffering in some way, that that must mean that God doesn't care or that he is absent or that there is no God or something like that. It'd be really easy to make those kinds of assumptions, and yet John has given a vision that shows that there is plenty of suffering in the world, there's plenty of suffering in the church even. And it does not for a moment mean that there is no God or that he's absent or that he doesn't care, that there's something else going on. And uh, this is where, you know, we see in the early chapters of Revelation that Jesus is the one who's depicted in visionary, uh, symbolic sense, kind of in dreamlike logic and with thorough references to the Old Testament is depicted as the one who is both God and man, who is priest and king, and who is the one who is the head over the church and who actually knows his church. And so we see in the messages then to these seven churches as he's like, I know (laughs) your deeds. I know what's going on with you. And in some of those churches, the message is what you're doing is good and right, and you should keep on doing that. And what other messages have to do with is there are some areas where you are getting things really, really wrong and you really, really need to turn around or there will be a judgment that you face. And this all leads into then what we saw in chapters four and five of this vision of like the throne room of heaven where there is a throne and this means that there's someone potentially ruling over the whole of the universe. And we see that it is in fact the the one true and living God that we've been hearing about all the way back to Genesis and all the way through. 
And we see that there are representatives of God's people from all time who are there worshiping him, praising him for how great he is. We see representatives of every living creature around this throne, worshiping him, praising him for how great he is. And then we see that in chapter 5, this scroll, right? the one who's sitting on the throne has this scroll, and it's, and we talk about this as most likely being the, the explanation for how do you get from Genesis 1, where everything is created good, how do you get to a good creation again when we've already been through you know, things like Genesis 3, where sin enters the picture, people turn away from God, everything breaks down. You have a, a breakdown in the relationships all the way around, breakdown between the relationships between people and God, between people and each other, between people and all creation. And how does that get put back together? How does that get made good again? And this is what we're wanting to know is, is there a plan? It's like, well, yeah, there's a plan. Here it is. It's in the scroll. And it's like, okay, great. Can, can we look at it? How can we, <laughs> can we open it? Well, it's actually sealed and there's seven seals on here. We can't look in there. And it, as it turns out that there has to be somebody, some person who is worthy to break the seals, to open the scroll and to actually lead this project going forward. And then this is where we have actually tears in heaven as John weeps because the question is that who, who is worthy? Is anyone worthy to break the seals, to open the scroll? And he's like, I looked everywhere and there was no one. No one could open it. No one could do this. And so he weeps because now does this mean that the whole project just goes to nothing? That we started off good and then it's just been downhill ever since and we've just continued to spiral around the drain and then it ends, and that's it. There will be no restoration. There will be no renewal. There will be no redemption. That, that's a sad story. And yet, you could kind of look around at what we experience, and you could interpret history that way and say, this is what's going on. Things started well, and it's just gone downhill ever since, and that's going to be the end of it. But one of the elders in John's vision says to him, don't weep. Look, the lion of Judah has conquered and he is worthy to break the seals, to open the scroll. And John turns and he looks and he doesn't see a lion, but he sees a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing in the midst of the throne. This is the one who is worthy. And so we recognize this as Jesus, who is God in the flesh, who has given up, laid down his life for us. This is the one who has gotten everything right. He is the only one who is worthy to lead this project forward. And so, of course, then everybody responds with lots of praise to the one who sits on the throne and to the lamb. That's where we left off, and that's what leads into then chapter 6. But as I say, chapter 6 is what turns the corner because in chapter 6 is where the lamb starts breaking the seals to open the scroll. And we start seeing things that, again, drawing on lots of Old Testament language and, again, given to us in a visionary sense, which we've talked about, like these images are very much like political cartoons kind of images where if you're a part of that culture, you just know what those mean. You have a donkey and an elephant being pictured with, you know, playing tug of war with an American flag, and you're like, 
Yeah, I get that. You don't have to explain that. I get that. (laughs) These things mean something. Same thing. If you're familiar with the whole of the Old Testament, if you're familiar with Jesus in the New Testament, if you're familiar with what's going on in Rome at the time when John is writing this, these symbols just pop. They mean something. And so this is what is given in these terms to explain what's going on. And as we get into this, though, we see there's a lot of hard stuff. But that's what's coming is some hard stuff. So before we actually look at this, Andrew, I've got a video. (laughs) I I really do. (laughs) And we're going to see if this will play. Oh, I put it after that, didn't I? Let's go ahead and read this first so you'll know what that was the plan. (laughs) We'll read Revelation 6 so you can hear what's going on, and then we'll watch a video that hopefully will help us understand some of the destructive stuff we're getting ready to see. So chapter 6 says, I watched as the Lamb opened the first of the seven seals. Then I heard one of the four living creatures say in a voice like thunder, Come. I looked, and there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow, and he was given a crown, and he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. When the Lamb opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. Then another horse came out, a fiery red one. Its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and make people kill each other. To him was given a large sword. When the lamb opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. I looked, and there before me was a black horse. Its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hand. Then I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures saying, Two pounds of wheat for a day's wages and six pounds of barley for a day's wages, and do not damage the oil and the wine. When the lamb opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. I looked, and there before me was a pale horse. Its rider was named Death, and Hades was following close behind him. They were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword, famine, and plague, and by the wild beasts of the earth. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Then each of them was given a white robe, and they were told to wait a little longer until the full number of their fellow servants, their brothers and sisters, were killed just as they had been. I watched as he opened the sixth seal. There was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair. The whole moon turned blood red, and the stars in the sky fell to the earth as figs drop from a fig tree when shaken by a strong wind. The heavens receded like a scroll being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and everyone else, both slave and free, hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. They called to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can withstand it? Now, before you go on to the video, this this question that they end with, this chapter ends with, you may have noticed there's seven seals, and only six of them have been opened by the end of chapter 6. There is a pattern that goes on through the book of Revelation. We're going to see seven seals, we're going to see seven trumpets, we're going to see seven bowls, and every time, six of them get opened, and then there's like a pause. And this is really the question. is like right as you're leading up to sort of final, final judgment, and the question is then left hanging of who can stand in this time 
of final judgment. Who is it? And the picture of this is kind of like at the end of the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus tells about the builders of two houses. And there's the wise and the foolish man. And one builds his house on the rock. The other builds his house on the sand. And basically, that's the difference is that they, they build their life on something different. But that the circumstances they face are the same. In both cases, the rain comes down, the streams rise up, and the winds blow and beat against the house. In both cases. But the difference is one stands and the other falls. And so the question is, okay, so why did the one stand? (laughs) Whose house is going to stand? And it's the one that's built on the rock, which goes back to Jesus saying, it's not those who hear my words, but it's those who actually hear them and put them into practice. And this is the same kind of thing that we're seeing throughout Revelation. It's who is it that can stand when the rains and the streams and the winds of final judgment come? And it is those who are in Christ. And this is what we will see going forward. But there's going to be a lot of, a lot of rough stuff. So I want to look at this uh, video. I've taken a much longer video and kind of shortened it and put it with a song that goes along with this theme. But it's a painting restoration video. You ready? All right, go for it. That was painful, but (laughs) hopefully you get what was going on there, uh, even if it was really, really choppy uh, to get through. Uh, If you would like to see the video uh, later, let me know, and we'll try that. But the idea here is you've got somebody who has a painting that was originally painted good, but it has had years of just falling apart and being mistreated and abused and just grime that piles up. And so you start the whole thing and you're like, okay, if you had one of these paintings, what would you do to fix it? I don't even know, you know? And so you may try some things and apparently people had tried some things on this painting in the past, but what it really takes is somebody who knows what they're doing, who knows how to get off all of the stuff that is, um, ruining the painting without ruining the painting. And that's real tricky. And so that's what uh, this guy does. I love his uh, videos on YouTube. He does this with lots of paintings. That's really cool. He knows what he's doing. And you get to see the before and the after, and you're like, wow. And his whole goal is just to restore it to its original glory, that kind of thing. This is what is going on in the whole book of Revelation. It's uh, this visionary answer to the question of how do you get the good creation restored, but not even just restored, but renewed, redeemed, and made good. How do you get it to where you can have people not with broken relationships anymore between us and God, us and each other, and us and creation, but with good, healthy relationships between us and God? How can we dwell with God and with each other and in a renewed creation? And so when we see this, the seals open, they break, and we see these people riding out on these horses, and we see a conqueror coming in conquest, and people, someone who's going to take peace from the earth and make people kill each other. And we see that we have famine where we have two pounds of wheat for a day's wages, six pounds of barley for a day's wages. Do not damage the oil and wine. This is like the basic necessities of life have just 
been affected by massive inflation, so the people can barely even afford to feed themselves and probably not their families. Although the oil and the wine, the luxury items, those are fine. Um, <laughs> and, and then we have death. And so you say, okay, well, this does not look good. This is, you have things like war and violence and famine and death. How could this possibly be something that is, that is a part of the restoration of creation? And that's a really good question. <laughs> and that's where I think a video like that is helpful if you could see it, in that there's so much that looks very destructive, and yet it's all very intentional and purposeful. And so when we get then to, well, put it this way, before we get to the fifth seal, the first four with all these horsemen. Think about this. Have you ever taken a history class? Yes. The answer is yes. You've all taken a history class. So <laughs> of some sort. When you think on world history, if, and if you've ever taken any sort of world history class, if you were to remove every part of that class that dealt with war and famine and death and uh, economic problems, you take those parts out of the class, what's left? Not a lot, right? There are some other things that are there, but these really do seem to be the things that dominate these kinds of classes because this is what happens in this world, isn't it? And so you can look at these kinds of things and say, man, you look at what's going on in the world today and there are leaders in this world who are bent on conquest and that's what they're after and we see war and we see inflation and we see famine and we go, my goodness, this is talking about today. Yep. And if you go back a hundred years, you would see the same thing, different players, different parts of the world maybe and you'd say, oh my goodness, this is talking about today and you'd be right. You go back another hundred years, you'd be right. Another this is what's going on. But then the question is, how could this possibly be going on? Why would God allow such a, such a thing? Why does he not put it all to an end now? Why doesn't he just stop it all? We can see that this is horrible stuff and it's causing all kinds of suffering. Why don't he just stop it? And there are a lot of people who turn away from God for exactly that reason. They say there is too much suffering in this world. And so I don't think that there could be a God who could allow such thing. That is one response. Here's another response. Breaks the fifth seal. And you have under the altar, he sees the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. So people who were very much in John's same position, word of God and testimony of Jesus, and yet he had been sent to exile. These are people who had been killed. And so they are asking a very reasonable question. How long are you going to let this kind of thing go on? Why don't you just stop it now? Because from our perspective, it seems like you should just stop it now. And we get a really strange answer. They say, how long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? And then each of them was given a white robe and they were told to wait a little longer until the full number of their fellow servants and their brothers and sisters were killed just as they were. 
You ever heard a more unsatisfying answer to this question? Right? Like this is the point where you kind of expect that God's going to be like, you're right, this has gone on long enough, enough. And he doesn't. Instead, he tells the people who are crying out for justice, be patient, just wait. Wait for what? Oh, for more people to be killed. What? That's not, no, 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 no. I don't think you understood what we were asking. See, we, we, we think it should stop now. And the reason why is because we find ourselves having a perspective that is very much the same as what we talked about at the beginning of what our eyes can see and our hands can touch, our ears can hear, those sorts of things. We have a very much an earthly perspective on things, very similarly to Mary and Martha who send word to Jesus that their brother is sick and Jesus doesn't go immediately to heal him. But instead, he waits where he is two more days so that Lazarus dies and then they go and the first thing that they each say to him, Lord, if you had been here, he wouldn't have died. They are upset with Jesus for his delay. And yet Jesus tells the disciples the reason for his delay. And the reason for his delay is, this is in John chapter 11. Then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I'm glad I was not there so that you may believe. Let us go to him. Okay. And he goes there and he tells Martha, that he is the resurrection and the life. Okay, well, that's, that's great, but you, you, know, you weren't here when my brother was sick, and now it's too late, and you have messed up. And he's like, no, 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 no. You're seeing this all from the wrong perspective. Then he goes and he, he weeps with them because the suffering of this world is real suffering but it also doesn't get the last word. And he raises Lazarus to life again. It's the same kind of misunderstanding. See, Mary and Martha were seeing this from a human perspective, from an earth-dwelling perspective, where someone is sick, the thing that they definitely need is to be made well. And Jesus is like, maybe there's something more important than that. And we say, how could that possibly be anything more important than that? This is a matter of life and death. Yeah. Same perspective that Peter has when Jesus tells him, Jesus tells Peter, I'm going to die. And Peter says, don't talk like that. That's not going to happen to you. And Jesus says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. For you do not have in mind the things of God, but only the things of people on the human concerns. That's the problem we are all so susceptible to that we easily fall into is having this perspective of how things ought to go. And that usually means that things should be comfortable, relatively pain-free, and just keep going from good to better to better to better. And then things don't go that way. What's up with that? And it's because we have a very limited perspective on our lives and on all of what God is doing in all of his creation. 
And if we forget, if we forget chapter 5 of the lamb who has been slain as the one who is worthy, then we put ourselves in the position of the ones who get to judge if what God is doing is good or not. And that's not our place, is it? It would be like walking into that guy's studio who's doing the painting restoration, and he starts, he flips the painting over. You're like, oh, don't do that. You know, now you can't even see the picture. And he starts scraping off all the glue on the back. You're like, oh, no, no, no. Now the whole thing's going to fall apart. You can't be scraping that. Look at this. Look at that. You're damaging the whole thing. You're ruining everything. How many times have we prayed like that? <laughs> and the response consistently is, hold on, wait, trust me, I know what I'm doing. And when we remember that the one who knows what he's doing is also the one who has given up his life, who has experienced the suffering and the pain of this world, that's when we realize he is someone who can absolutely be trusted to make all things good again. And this is uh, when we get to the sixth seal. And it seems like the whole world is coming to an end. The final judgment is just, we're like, we're at the doorstep of it. And we see that there are people at this point who are hiding in caves among the rocks and calling to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of of the Lamb, for the great day of the wrath has come, and who can withstand it? And so what we see is the judgments that are brought, the suffering that happens in this world, there's a dual purpose for it. It both gets rid of what is broken and wrong, all the grime that's built up on the painting, but it also restores and solidifies those who are joining in with how this whole creation is supposed to be. And so here we have those who have seen things from a worldly perspective and have said, if this is all there is, then I'm going to get all I can. And so they do. And they are running over the people of God. They are running over everyone and everything that they can. And they are getting the most they can in this world. As Jesus says, and we've mentioned this multiple times, what good, good is it for someone to gain the whole world and forfeit their soul? And this is the point that John is seeing in his vision, the point where people are brought face-to-face -face with that reality. I have gained the whole world, and yet I have forfeited my soul, and now I'm being called to account, and I don't want to face it. And so I would rather die than come face-to-face -face with Jesus. And so the question again, as they say, the great day of the wrath has come. Who can withstand it? Who can withstand it? It's those who are in Christ, those who are following him, who are putting his uh, words into practice in their lives, who are committing themselves to seeing things in all of reality as he has depicted it, and not just as our senses tell us, and not just as our limited life experience tells us. 
believing that he is the way and the truth and the life. Those who trust that there may be things that we learn in our suffering that cannot be accomplished any other way. It is one thing to know something to be true. It's another to know it to be true. (laughs) And sometimes the only way we get there is through suffering that we would never choose. And yet, we see the way that God can still use it. We're going to get into... We haven't even made it the seventh seal yet. We're going to get into more of that in the weeks to come. There's a lot more before we get to the restored creation. But hopefully this kind of sets the the table well for all of that. And hopefully... (laughs) We're already seeing things not as those who just dwell in the earth, but those who already in Christ, in some degree, dwell in heaven, even as we are living on the earth. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this day that you have made. God, we thank you for all that you have made. And Lord, we do recognize that we have all played a part in warping and distorting your good creation. Lord, we thank you for the forgiveness we have in Jesus. We thank you for calling us to yourself and to be those who maintain the testimony of Jesus, bearing witness to who he is by everything that we say, everything we do. That he is the King of kings, that he is the Lord of lords that he is the one who is worthy to say how everything is and to lead us in how we move forward. Lord, we do pray that you would help us to see the ways that we get taken in by the world, our own flesh, the devil. Lord, help us to be led by your spirit. Help us to see everything through the filter of your word. God, continue your project of restoration in our lives and in this world. Help us to trust you as we walk with you in this. Lord, we pray all this in the name of Jesus who taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from evil. Thine is the kingdom and the power and glory forever. Amen.